Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of the Remnant Podcast, uh, brought to you by Dispatch Media and thedispatch.com. Go over there to sign up for all good things. Also, if you have a Google Home or an Alexa product, you can just say, uh, hey, Alexa, or hey, Google Home, or however you initiate the AI of Google Home. Um, Play me the Remnant by Jonah Goldberg, and it'll start spewing out my words in your kitchen or your garage or wherever you have it. Um... So today we have a very special podcast and a return visitor, um, and I think the last time I introduced him, I said he was technically my boss at AI, and he took umbrage at that, so I guess I will just say full-throatedly he's my boss at AI, or one of my bosses at AI. I have many masters there. Um, uh, I just don't want to disparage Robert Doerr, who's not only a handsome man, but a powerful man. And technically the president of AI. And technically the president of AI, and um, both de facto and de jure president <laughs> of AI. Uh, we have uh, my friend and colleague uh, Yuval Levin, who has a new book out, which I highly, highly, highly recommend, A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. Yuval, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So um, I'll sort of pick up where our last conversation more or less left off and sort of make a blanket point to listeners. Um what do Colin Kaepernick, Elizabeth Holmes, the lady, the fraudster from Theranos, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, and Ann Coulter all have in common? Uh, the answer is that these are people who have, to one extent or another, some with greater success than others, uh, mastered the art of using institutions that they were associated with, either as a party or a business, um, as platforms for which they could succeed. Um, often to the detriment of the institutions that they were standing upon. And that's one of the themes of, of Yuval's book, is how our understanding of institutions and the role they play in our society has sort of changed before our eyes. And a lot of the things that we lament about today's politics and today's culture are a direct result of that. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. It's a book that tries to think about some of the problems we're having in our country through this lens of institutions. And argues exactly that in a lot of institutions, we find people who should be insiders formed and molded by the institution's definition of its purpose and integrity 
instead acting like outsiders, standing on top of it to be seen in a broader culture war. Uh, and that's happening in our politics. It's happening in the professions, in the media, in the academy. And it has a lot to do with the public's loss of confidence in institutions that in turn has a lot to do with the other problems we're living through. And so how did this happen? <laughs> Uh, The answer, in a sense, is, of course, everything that's happened since the Second World War adds up to this picture. But I think that if we look at at how the public's attitude toward what our institutions do has changed, I think it has to do, first of all, with the broad fragmentation of American life in recent decades from a very cohesive consensus, uh, mainstream consensus in America in the post-war era, to what is a much more diverse, but also much more fragmented and divided society. And in that society, everything tells us to be who we are. Nothing tells us, here's what you should be. And our strongest institutions and the ones that we tend to trust most are actually formative institutions. They're ones who give us a sense of what it is to be a better person and help to form us into that better person. We've come to dislike that, to resist it, to reject it, and instead to seek institutions that just offer us stages and platforms. And then, of course, various kinds of technological advances, uh, social media, most notably in recent decades, uh, have given us all kinds of platforms to perform. And a lot of our other institutions have kind of remade themselves in that image. Yeah. So one of the points I've heard you emphasize and you emphasize in the book is that um, you can't just have institutions to be institutions, right? Right. Institutions are in a sort of a Hayekian sense, social tools. They need to do something. They need to perform a task. Yeah, this is really, it's a core insight of the kind of communitarian sociology that comes out of Robert Nisbet, uh, a a great former AI scholar, uh, mid-20th century sociologist who, who, who put it this way. He said, institution, people don't come together people don't come together to be together. They come together to do something together. And that means that institutions lose their meaning when they lose their purpose. And an important part of what's happened in American life uh, in the last few decades is that a lot of the purposes of our distinct and local institutions have been pushed out by government on the one hand, by the expansion of a more kind of national understanding of American life on the other. And with less to do together, people do come together less. And we find a crisis that expresses itself in isolation and alienation and loneliness, I think has a lot to do with the decline and the deformation of the institutions that are closest to us. Okay, so it might it might help listeners a little bit if instead of just constantly using the word institution over yeah. and over again, if you gave an example or two of institutions that were once vibrant that have kind of lost their their purpose or their sense of meaning or their ability to pull people together. Yeah, I mean, you can see it in a variety of ways where institutions that used to be very formative of the people inside them now are much more performative. In politics, it's very easy to see. I mean, members of Congress now, especially younger members of Congress, basically seem to run for office in order to get a better time slot on cable news uh, or to get a bigger Twitter following. And they use Congress as a platform, as a place to stand and yell, often about Congress. And Basically, what happens in the average congressional hearing now is a bunch of people creating YouTube clips to use later in campaigning. Um, and that means there's much less attention being paid to the actual work of the Congress, uh, and a lot of what ought to be legislative work is passed along to executive agencies, all the things that conservatives love to complain about, where we think about them in terms of judges and uh, presidents and executive agencies getting too strong. A lot of those are really about Congress getting too weak, and doing it on purpose because the members want to perform more than they want to legislate. 
Obviously, this also functions as a description of, of Donald Trump's understanding of the presidency, where rather than working from within it and taking its shape to be effective, he stands on top of it and yells about the Department of Justice, which most presidents have thought about as working for them. Um, but this president thinks about as a subject for political commentary. I think in other ways you can see this in the professions. And if we look to the, if we look around politics, you can find, for instance, in the media where the value of political journalism and the reason the public would trust political journalism is that it offers means of, of, of affirming and confirming and verifying facts and knowing what's true and what's not through a process uh, that, that ideally would be the process that journalism follows. What you find today is a lot of political journalists taking themselves out of that process, standing alone on a platform on Twitter or elsewhere, uh, and blurring the lines between their professional work and their personal opinions in ways that just actively deprofessionalize them in public and leave the public with much less of an ability or a reason to trust the media. You see similar things happening in other professions. Uh, and once you see that pattern, you can see it happening in the academy. You can see it happening throughout American life and religious life and civic life. And it has a lot to do with why the public has lost confidence in institutions. Uh, what it really means to have trust in institutions is to believe that they form trustworthy people who perform important tasks in our society. If that's not the business they're in, then we don't trust them. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's funny as a culture war point. I mean, because we've been talking about this stuff for a long time, and it's been had a huge influence on me. Uh, you were the guy who first told me to start listening to John Ward's podcast, yeah. and you were a big influence on that. And and it's one of these things. It's sort of like when you discover a word first time for the first time, and then you see it everywhere, uh -huh. and you're like, "How does that, <laughs> how did I miss it all of these years?" If, if you th if you use this as a prism to think about stuff like why call them conservatives, red state flyover people, whatever you know, non pejorative you know, catch all you want to use, why we get so mad at the Oscars, right? Right. Every year, these very pretty people who are extremely rich and got ex and could only have gotten rich in this country um, use this platform not to express. I mean, they express gratitude to the Academy and their agent and all that crap, but they then use that opportunity to pee from a great height on the American people, on the country. If a Republican's in office, on the Republicans, and you can see, I. I, I feel it. I mean, I'm, I'm very much like a talk radio Yahoo when I when I watch some of these award yeah. ceremonies. And I think it's one of the reasons why Ricky Gervais' little speech was so well received by so many people um, and so hated by so many others is because he pointed out the sort of the sort of cultural asymmetry of it, that these people are not heroes and using these platforms to preen and to tell an audience exactly what it wants to hear and then be labeled heroic for doing so really is one of those things that does fan culture war stuff more than almost anything else. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it is an example of people who have made their name or their reputation within a framework of some set of institutions or a profession or part of American life, and then using that to stand on top of and basically preach in the culture wars. Um, we, you know, when when athletes do the same thing, or even when people who have roles to play in American religious institutions instead kind of stand on top of them and talk politics, I think what they're doing is deforming those institutions and and blurring the lines between them. So that what happens now at the New York Times 
and what happens now at Brown University are basically indistinguishable. They're just both places to stand and yell about oppression. And the fact is, there are roles for these institutions. There is, there is a need for a reliable newspaper and a good university, and they're different. They're different things. They're not just both places to fight the same war. When we start losing these distinctions, uh, all of these institutions lose their ability to do what we might need from them, and they all become intolerable in just about the same way and feed that larger culture war that is so much a part of what's gone wrong in American politics and culture. Um, yeah, no, and so I start looking around at people, and some of this would be considered unfair by some people, but when I look at people like, um, oh, what's his name, the MIT linguist who's a great linguist, Noam Chomsky, Noam Chomsky. right, yeah. who really did have right. serious expertise about the about <laughs> the topic of linguistics, using that expertise, borrowing from it, yeah. to then spout all sorts of crazy left-wing stuff. Or even to a certain extent, Paul Krugman, who uses his stature as a pretty good trade economist, mm-hmm. to then opine on everything under the sun. And when you question it, he you, he, he borrows the, the, the legitimacy he gets from the Nobel Committee, from his academic stuff, as if, you know, as, as Bill Murray says in Ghostbusters, back off, man, we're scientists, right? You know? right exactly. Um, and, um, and just so to sort of put a fine point on this, if you look at the campaigns of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump in 2016, both of these guys essentially, you know, Democrats have always hated Bernie Sanders, right, or institutionalists. Right. And they... Um, you know, he was a socialist. He was an independent. He was constantly carping about the corporatism and badness of the Democratic Party. But he used the Democratic Party to as a platform for his own agenda. Donald Trump basically did the same thing with a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. And the interesting thing, I guess, is that to just to sort of take the analysis a little further is that in their success, they are now changing those institutions. That's right. And and in the process, they make it difficult for those institutions to do what we need from them. The political parties have a real role to play. We, we need those parties to frame and shape our political discourse and our political culture. They contain partisanship. The parties don't create partisanship. They actually limit and restrain it. But when they just turn into platforms, when really all that the two parties are now are just stages for narcissists to stand on and get a lot of attention then they can't perform those other functions, those functions of selection and agenda setting. Uh, And we live in a politics without functional parties, which is actually a more partisan and less constructive politics. And as institutions are transformed from molds of the space they operate in to just platforms for standing and yelling, a lot of these core social functions just don't get done. And a, a big part of why we're living in a time where it, it's a little hard to explain the roots of people's dissatisfaction, right? The economy's strong. There are a lot of good things going for America. People are healthier and safer than ever. Why is our mood what it is? I think it has a lot to do with the fact that the institutions we rely on to structure our social lives, to give us things to belong to, to be part of, to have a place in, to get some status from, those are all suffering this fate. And we're finding it very difficult to have a functional social life. Yeah, so you quote uh, a sort of hero of both of ours, uh, Irving Kristol, praise be upon him, um, on page 183. See, I did the reading, Professor. There you go. Uh, people, feel, people feel free when they subscribe to prevailing social philosophy. They feel unfree when the prevailing social philosophy is unpersuasive. And the existence of constitutions or laws or judiciaries have precious little to do with these basic feelings. 
Um, why don't you sort of explain yeah. the context of that? So it, this is one of those things where you, you think you're thinking creatively and originally, and then you discover that Irving Kristol already saw this 40 years ago. It happens to me all the time. Me too. Um, w- th- that, that quote is in a discussion at the, toward the end of the book about meritocracy and what it has to do with this larger process I'm describing. And the ways in which we now determine who our elites are and who runs our major institutions and who has power and authority in our society, there's been a transformation in that, obviously, in American life in the last half century from a um, largely a sort of WASP-centered elite toward uh, a meritocracy, a transformation that was moved by the view that our institutions were too exclusive, it was too hard to get into them, and that in order to be legitimate and to be understood as legitimate in a democratic society, they'd have to let more people in. And that's true. But there's a second way that, that people in authority have to legitimate themselves in a democratic society, not just by who gets to have power, but they ha- by how they use that power. And meritocracy means that our elites are actually less concerned about being seen to be using power legitimately than, th- than even the American aristocracy of the 19th, early 20th century was because they believe they've earned that place and they view the institutions they're part of as there to serve them and advance them because they've proven their merit. What Irving Kristol is trying to get across in that quote is that people can't be satisfied with their society if they feel like the rules of who succeeds and who fails aren't just in some way that they can explain to themselves. And we now live in a situation where too few of our institutions and the people who run them care about showing the public that power and authority and success are are allocated in some just way that we can prove and point to. And part of what it would mean to reform our institutions and help them be strong again is to constrain and contain our elites. That's what strong institutions do. What a profession does is turn people with power into agents of their fellow citizens, right? That's what lawyers are, ideally. It's not what Yale Law School is training people for now. Instead, it's, it's training them to be elites who stand on top of institutions and preach to the larger society. And it's not surprising that we live with a, with a crisis of legitimacy, given that. Yeah, so uh, this is going to seem Goldbergian, but um, in the, I, I remember writing a bit about this in the 1990s. It was an interesting thing where um, a lot of liberals couldn't understand why so many conservatives love the movie Braveheart, right? And right. in the movie Braveheart, um, ostensibly, I mean, it's just all of this rhetoric about freedom and obviously good fight scenes and all that, obviously. Um, but the freedom that the Scots were fighting for wasn't Randian individual autonomy. It was the ability to live with in the rules of what they saw as their legitimate culture and society. And the, what they didn't like were these English oppressors imposing their rules on them. And so when what, what right. I think about the urban quote where he says that people don't feel free unless they feel like the rules of the society are just, um, it's a really interesting point because it's not freedom just to do whatever the hell you want. It's that the in a sense, the moral law is consonant with the, and I would say moral law, I just don't mean theological or that kind of thing. I also mean just what is the, what we understand to be fairness yeah. is consistent with how the society actually works. And so you could actually, I would argue that we probably live 
this is the freest time in American history in an objective sense, but a lot of people feel unfree because they feel like they're moving against the grain of the way the world is supposed to be working. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it really speaks to the populism of this moment, which is a particular kind of populism, a, a view that things are rigged against the public in our society, that they're there to serve somebody else and not us. Now, I think a lot of times that view is misguided. It's not actually a correct description of American life, but the reason it happens, seems to me, has to do with this crisis of legitimacy, the challenge of how you prove that you have a rightful place uh, and and that the power you use is legitimate. You wouldn't think that institutions in a democratic society would have to prove their legitimacy all the time, right? They, they, get, they get their power from the public or from consumers or in some other way from the choice of the people. But the fact is that we do have to demonstrate how what we're engaged in somehow serves a larger purpose and a larger purpose that other people can understand and can appeal to. And at, at this moment, the elites and various institutions in our society are having a lot of trouble demonstrating that. And we really do live with a crisis of legitimacy. Yeah. So you write, uh, today we ask for a politics of breaking down authority when what we really want is more respectable authority. When our politics challenges the establishment, it only sharpens our sense of what we're missing. Yeah, that's right. I, I think ultimately populism is not, uh, is not nihilism. It, it's not that it wants no authority. Even when, when we, we hear ourselves saying that we need to drain the swamp and clear the weeds and all of that, the fundamental complaint is that the people in power aren't using it well and don't have it legitimately. And I think that healthy institutions help us with both of those problems. They help legitimate various kinds of uses of power and they help us to use it well. And ultimately the reason is that functional institutions are formative. This is a conservative book in, I, I think, the deepest sense, which is it begins from the premise that human beings start out in a fallen, imperfect way and need to be formed to be better. And that formation is what our institutions do for us. I, I think the right Starting with the family. Yeah, first and foremost the family and then civil society and educational institutions and schools and then the, the rest of the institutions of society too. I don't begin from the premise that people just need to be to be liberated uh, and and to be uh, elevated and then they're free. I think we first need to be formed to be free. And to me, that seems like an essential assumption of conservatives. And in that sense, it is precisely conservatism, which isn't necessarily the same as what the American right is doing today. But conservatism is absolutely necessary for helping our society out of the jam that it's in now. Because that view that this is what our institutions need to do for us is essential for helping rebuild their legitimacy. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I talk about this a bit in my book and, and you know, the way my pithy way of putting it is, is that anybody who's had kids knows that we are born with all sorts of factory preset software, but we need updates, yeah. you know, and yeah. the family updates our software. And then the, the outgoing concentric circles of of institutions, community, schools, they also do that process of turning us into people. And part of the problem is that we live in a culture where we, where the highest sense of moral authority is being true to yourself, right. which is a exactly. terrible way to raise children, right? I mean, like uh, the joke, I think I've said this before on this podcast, but, you know, like saying to your kids, hey, you know, Personally, I wouldn't run with scissors, but you you be you. Listen to your gut. Go with your instincts, right? I mean, that's the definition of parenting 
is restraining and channeling human nature in positive ways. Right. right. And I still think parents do that, but they are so afraid of being hypocrites that and, and so it, part of the problem it seems to me in our culture is this this profound hypocrophobia, right, That's of right. being inauthentic. I, I think what we have here is, first of all, this is a very deeply rooted uh, idea in the American character. And in some ways, it's a good idea, right? Our culture begins in a kind of dissenting Protestantism that doesn't like mediating institutions, that identifies authenticity with directness, uh, and that resists being told what to do. Th this isn't all bad. It's part of what makes America great. But there are ways that it can easily go too far. And I think in our culture now, especially as it's gotten separated from its religious foundations, that attitude has basically come to be a way of saying that all that people need are ways to express themselves. That seems to me to be very deeply mistaken. Mm -hmm. People need ways to improve themselves. And rather than be yourself, uh, our society should be telling us, be better in various ways. Now, what we don't have is a good theory of ourselves that, le that, that helps us understand how this works and why it's good. Our theories of ourselves are relatively shallow. They're very individualistic. And so when we think about where legitimacy comes from, it tends to be from a very individualistic and sort of libertarian liberalism. And there's truth in those theories, but it's not the whole truth. We can see it in the institutions we do respect and we do think highly of. The, the great exception to American loss of confidence in institutions, for example, is the military. I don't think that's just because the military is very good at defending us from our enemies, though it is. I think it's also because the military forms human beings and makes them better. People enter as one sort of person and leave as another sort, and we know it's a better sort. When somebody tells you that they went to Harvard, you think, okay, maybe you're smart. When someone tells you that they went to the Naval Academy, you think that person is likely to be a good person. Mm. It's just our assumption. It could be wrong in both cases. But we assume that because we think of those institutions as formative, as, as making people better by giving them a sense of belonging and integrity as defined by some ideal that is fundamentally a moral ideal. We want that, and yet we don't often have the language that lets us express why and how we want that. So... Um it's funny you bring up the Protestant Reformation because it seems to me that the it was when I was earlier when we were talking I you think about the the upheavals that came with the Protestant Reformation um, I've always on these some of the on, on a lot of these arguments I've always erred on the side of defending the Catholic Church and a lot of this stuff uh, not that I'm anti-Protestant I just think the Catholic Church often because of our Protestant culture, gets a worse rap than yes. it deserves. I agree. Now, I'm Jewish. I think they're all heretics, but yes. I understand. But, yes. yeah. <laughs> but you know, uh, the, one of the things I've always appreciated about the Catholic Church is that for all of its myriad historical flaws, um, it was an old institution. And as an old institution, it understood where to make compromises in the world in order to sustain its place in the world. And it, you know, it always bothered me when we talk about, you know, there was this whole fad in Middle Eastern studies about how what, what the what the Middle East needed was a Muslim Martin Luther, right? right? Yeah. It had and, plenty of those. Yeah, and that's the problem, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, and sometimes people, sort of the, the, the third-rate people making this argument, you weren't clear whether they were talking about Martin Luther King or Martin Luther, mm. but either way, I mean, Martin Luther King would be great. Yes. That would be really great. But um, in the advent of Martin Luther, which only is possible because of the, basically the printing press, 
um, you had uh, huge outbreaks in iconoclasm. People were tearing down statues, burning things. Uh, there were more uh, – people forget you know, the, the witch hunts were largely a Protestant phenomenon, not a Catholic phenomenon. Mm-hmm. The Catholics would send in priests and say, you guys are getting out of hand when there was witch burning. Um, it was also a lot of the witch burning was um, – a secular thing. It mm-hmm. was the local secular knights who were un- in Protestant countries who were Protestant lands who were unrestrained by the Catholic Church who said, you know, don't get crazy here. We don't need more Jan Husses or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it does raise this sort of fundamental question. You know, I just had David Brooks on and he, we got into a little bit of a friction because he kind of has a monocausal theory of what our problems are, and it's basically it's culture. He calls it cultural determinism. The cultural drives everything. I'm very sympathetic right. to it, but technology ha- plays a huge role in a lot of this, and technology changes culture in significant ways. In in the sense that, you know, we started out by talking about how institutions are tools to do things, right, to accomplish things. When technology replaces those institutions. Um, that's one of the things that destroys their utility is mm-hmm. because you can now just do it on your own. Yeah, I think that's right. And it, it actually relates to this Catholic Protestant question in the sense that it's important to see that institutions aren't just tools, that they do help us advance important practical ends and meet goals and serve needs and all that. But in the process, they also form us so that a less institutional way of meeting the same goal tends to leave us less formed. I think durable, long-standing institutions contain in themselves the product of a long process of evolution and sort of negotiating with reality in ways that help them be very well adjusted to human needs and human wants. You see the same thing in our study when we try to replace institutions with, uh, with technology. We lose a lot of what those institutions actually do for us, and I think there are ways in which social media is just perfectly well adapted to the kind of crisis we're living through. It is exactly what we need to make it worse. Um, it exacerbates the worst parts of it, and it does it in part precisely by elevating us, by giving each to each of us a chance to be a celebrity, or by turning each of us into our own paparazzi, right? It's kind of hounding ourselves for photographs, right. um, which is one way of thinking about what what. Going through a great experience and thinking, I got to take a picture for for Facebook, um, it means that we think of ourselves performatively. We understand ourselves as standing on a platform and being seen. And look, that's part of what it is to be a human being in a society, but it's not all that it is. And it, again, distracts us from understanding the ways in which we need to be formed and should want to be formed. So I don't think technology is the reason for the problems we're living through. But I think it's it's both driven by it and has exacerbated this larger kind of social crisis. I definitely don't have a monocausal explanation of this. I think this is a process of social evolution that has been driven by by the the liberalization of American society, both economic and political and cultural, uh, over more than half a century. But that along with it has brought these technological changes, political changes, and cultural changes. Uh, they're all feed in the same direction. The reason I try to focus on institutions is, first of all, that they're harder to see. So I mm-hmm. think it's important to uh, articulate that side of the problem and make it visible. And also because it's a place where we might be able to do something about it. I think that rather than say, well, our culture is the problem and we need a cultural revolution to change it, which I, d- I wouldn't know how to start a cultural revolution. I don't think anybody else does either. Thinking in terms of institutions lets each of us have something to do because we are each 
we do each play a part in some set of institutions, whether that's in, in our work or in our personal lives, in our families, in our communities, maybe in politics uh, or elsewhere. And w- one way we can start to get at this problem is to try to ask ourselves the, the great unasked question of American life in this period, which is, given my role here, how should I behave? Mm-hmm. When you're confronted with a decision, as a parent, as a neighbor, as the vice principal of this school, as a member of Congress, how should I behave? That I, I would bet you that the people who most drive you crazy in America are people who seem never to ask that question when they should. And the people that you quietly admire and look up to are the ones that seem always to be asking that question before they make a major decision. And one way for us to do something about this problem we're living through is to just ask ourselves that question when we make an important decision. Yeah. No, I mean, that's absolutely true. I mean, the, the seems to me like the, the things I have stopped myself from doing because of my concern of how it might affect my wife or daughter. Right. I have very few regrets in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe one or two if I really did a yeah, robust personal Yeah, one of the best things story. about having kids is, is you become the, the person that you want them to see. Right. Uh, even if you're not really all that great and you know it, uh, you don't want your kids to see you in this way or that way. And so you just don't do this or that. Yeah. And that is how we become better people. Right. Is, And so, um, okay, so I, I want to get to practical politics stuff in a minute. But so the... Uh, the other recent podcast I did was with uh, our colleague Ross Douthat. Yeah. Um, and um, one of the questions we kind of danced around was whether or not our problems are downstream of the fact that, I mean, we didn't use the, this, this term, but that we, we've lost the tune of our metaphysics, right? Mm-hmm. We just... We don't really know why we're here. The, and obviously, the decline of religion is the big, is yeah. the 800 pound gorilla in that theory. But, you know, it was Paul Tillich, whose name I couldn't remember in that podcast, uh, who said that religion was provided uh, the answer to our ultimate concerns. Yeah. And for a long time, in uh, our ultimate concerns were death, because death was just omnipresent in everything in our lives. And we were used to seeing kids die, and uh, we were aware that we could die from some horrible disease or war or whatever in a moment's notice and religion was a bomb. I'm not calling it an opiate of the masses. That's not my argument, but it gave you a sense of the long horizon literally the eternal horizon with the is and our institutions formed around that worldview. Is it possible to come up with new institutions without restoring that religious sensibility? I, I think this is a great question, a very important question. And, and even apart from religion, is it possible to come up with new institutions that address our needs as we experience them now? We've become strangely incapable of building institutions. Uh, Americans have generally been very good at that. Uh, and you see it in American religion, too, where some of the kind of wild expressions of spirituality of the 19th century gradually became institutionalized into religions, into religions that have uh, a place in people's lives and that can interact with the rest of their lives in ways that form them positively. So, you know, American Mormonism, for example, or, 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 or Christian science began in very sort of personalistic, wild ways and gradually came to be formed into functional institutions. 
That's also the YMCA, the Salvation Army, and there was right. a whole bunch yeah. of these things. A lot of the responses to the social pressures of industrialization gradually became institutions at various levels of our society. And at this point, I think because we don't think institutionally in the ways that we used to, and because we have these other ways of meeting needs that don't require us to make commitments or to devote ourselves to these things in common, we've, we've just become, we've, we've lost a bit of the habit of institution building. So that uh, certainly there is, there is some degree of secularization in American life, but there's also a lot of kind of wild, unformed spirituality in American life uh, that probably points in the direction of various kinds of Christianity, but hasn't really quite taken that shape. And it doesn't seem to me that it's headed in the direction of forming religious institutions. And that suggests that it's not going to be in a position to speak to people's deepest needs and concerns in the ways that, uh, that our traditional religious institutions have been able to. So I think it's a real worry. And the, you know, the book is called A Time to Build, not just to rebuild. I don't think we need to just fix the institutions we have, though in many cases we can and should, and reform is a big part of what's needed. There are also just needs we have that ought to be met by new institutions that we ought to be getting together and building in American life. And, and there's a long American tradition of that that seems to be in abeyance now in a way that worries me. So another source of, and I just want your take on this, um, another historical source of meaning um, that, depending on what thinkers you subscribe to, is a substitute for religion or an alternative religion, um, is militarism or nationalism. Um, you know, it was Napoleon who said that he didn't really believe in religion, but he liked it for it, its, yeah. its social function of keeping everybody together. Um, and what he really meant was social cohesion of French people for his sort of military state. Um, William, uh, William James, who I've often picked a lot of fights with because I hate American pragmatism, but was a brilliant guy yeah. and has a lot of interesting things to offer. He's the guy who coined the phrase, the moral equivalent of war. And it was his program that um, I would argue that was picked up by the uh, the Wilsonians in the for the w war socialism phase of World War One, and then really taken to the next level under FDR. Um, this idea that war brings out what is best in us. There's this wonderful passage. It's not wonderful, but it's 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 compelling and shocking from William James about how war brings out the manly virtues, the best virtues. We are our best selves when we are at war. The only problem with war is the war. So if we could just get that from us. Yeah. And his goal was to declare war essentially on nature, um, which is funny because I, I would argue that progressivism has imbibed the moral equivalent of war argument down to its marrow. Um, but it doesn't want to, it, it now wants to have a war for nature rather mm -hmm. than against nature. Um, but the movement towards nationalism and socialism, to me, are very similar in the sense that these are efforts to come up with some new, I don't know, ethos or means of filling up this hole in our souls. And my problem with it is that national projects cannot do that except in times of crisis and temporarily, and they require abandoning a lot of the things that make this country great in the first place. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, there's this constant problem in uh, in in the literature of people who think about social dysfunction and reformation in America. That when you think about what could solve the kinds of problems we have, 
the historical analogies basically all say you need a terrible disaster that right. leads to mobilization. Right. Uh, you need a war, a Great Depression, and we don't want those. I, I think there's an alternative to mobilization as a as a driving force behind a a reforming spirit that could help us rebuild our society. But it seems to me that that requires a commitment to bottom up institution building, mm-hmm. to localism, to subsidiarity, to empowering people to make choices where they are. And in that way, drawing them in by making the institutions that are near at hand to them more significant, more important, helping them matter more. So nationalism can mean a lot of things. And I think in our arguments about nationalism, good or bad, we tend to confound a lot of meanings of nationalism. Nationalism, on the one hand, can just be a way of thinking about foreign policy. I think Yoram Hazoni thinks about nationalism basically as an alternative to globalism. Mm. Um, and I, 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 if that's what nationalism means, then I'm on board. Sure. I think nationalism is a better way to organize international relations than, uh, than thinking in terms of global political organization. That's why I call it nation. Uh, what I think Yoram is mostly doing is talking about nationism, right? Sort of. Uh, yeah, I think that's fair. An international order based around nation states. All in favor of it. Right. And that's one way to think about what nationalism is. Nationalism can also be a way of talking about our national character. It can, it can sort of be a, a substitute for patriotism. And I like that, too. There is such a thing as being an American. There's something important about it that we ought to appreciate and be grateful for. And it does distinguish us from other societies. Nationalism, though, can also be a way of saying that the nation is the right level at which to think about public problems and to organize our politics. And I'm not on board with that. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that kind of nationalism that says not only that the nation is the the organizing unit of international affairs, but that the nation is the appropriate organizing unit for domestic affairs, I think that's a mistake. That's a kind of progressive nationalism that seems counterproductive to me. And we confound these things all the time. So I think there is room for a genuinely constructive nationalism if we're thinking about foreign policy and if we're thinking about ways of understanding what's distinct about American life. But one of the things that's distinct about American life is that we incline to solve our problems locally. Um, And so it seems to me that recognizing the distinct character of our country is also to recognize that national mobilization has to be an exception in our experience and is not the way that we should look to solve our problems, but that something more like local mobilization um, is just going to be more effective. This is a huge society with lots of different people who want to live in lots of different ways, and that's our strength. That's not our weakness. So I, I incline to think that the kinds of problems that I point to in this book uh, are going to be more readily addressed by the sorts of institutions that exist at the level of the interpersonal than by the ones that exist at the level of the national. So you've mentioned a bunch of times that we have to build these institutions from the ground up on the local level. How do you do that? <laughs> well, I think you do it by understanding that we do require formative institutions and that we have them, that we're all part of them, and not imagining that the solution to our problems is for each of us to be liberated from them and to be standing on our own, building our own brand, that to solve problems, Americans need to work together, and that it, in thinking about how to work together, we have to think about forming institutions that have, that, that have hierarchies, that work to solve problems by experimenting. W- we've lost that sense, I think, in part because we've nationalized our way of thinking about how to solve problems, 
And at the same time, we've also individualized it, right? These things kind of work together. So that now, when people think about how to come together to solve a problem, they might think about uh, they might think about showing how strong their numbers are on social media, right? Uh, or expressing an opinion, right? Saying I agree is not actually a way of doing something about anything. Um, we, I agree. We, exactly. <laughs> we're very good at saying I agree. That's great. But uh, we also have to think about how do we act together. Uh, you know, th- there's a there's a kind of joke in a in a letter that Alexis de Tocqueville wrote to his father when he was in America. Where he said, if you get four Americans together, they'll elect a treasurer. <laughs> um, I, I wish that were true. I think that is the kind of institution-building instinct that often has defined American life. And that's, uh, that's something to recover, to think that we have a problem here to solve, so let's organize and form and build a structure that lets us work together. Um, that's the instinct that we require now. And, you know, it's gone out of fashion some. So a book like this that thinks in terms of this being a time to build, in part tries to remind Americans of what it would mean to think about addressing our problems by thinking about coming together and doing something about them rather than folding your hands and complaining or getting on Twitter and uh, making some snide, cynical comment uh, and then being surprised that things don't get better. So it seems to me part of what you're really talking about is is not leadership but followership. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We can't all be leaders um, and, you know... each of us does more following than leading, right? With very few exceptions, in most of our, in most parts of our lives, we're not the person in charge, even if we are in some part of our Even lives. in my family. Yeah, well, especially, <laughs> right? So, yeah, I think we, we have to be better at recognizing that having a cause in common with other people is a way to, uh, is a way to advance what matters to us in life. It's not just about getting our way. It is about working together. And our institutions are there to enable that. So we have to let them do that. All right. So in the, the time we have left, um, um, we're not going to do rank punditry. But um, as I think you know, uh, I have completely soured on the American primary system. Yeah. In large part f- for the reasons that are completely consonant with your book, yeah. right? That we are, with the recent exception of Great Britain, the only advanced democracy in the world where our parties have voluntarily yeah. given up the power to pick their own nominees. And um, as a result, we have, and there's other, uh, the campaign finance laws, the Watergate reforms, television, yeah. tele, you know, television and the telephone. Michael Barone, the guy who explained this to me, did a lot to undermine the power of the institutions of the political parties because, you know, it used to be prior to FDR, you needed a political convention, for example, to be able to negotiate deals, mm-hmm. right, to broker coalitions because you couldn't do it by letter. That took too long. And you needed to do it face-to-face. If you did it by letter, you write a letter to somebody, he would then pocket the letter and show it to somebody else and better deal you. So you had to strike deals over handshakes and cigars. And the telephone got rid of that. Um, The airplane got rid of that. Um, The fact that the conventions became televised slowly turned them into infomercials rather than tools or institutions for war something. Um, Go down a very long list. But anyway, the parties are now – so. but the the coup de grace to me was the primary system, which – um, basically turned both parties into essentially brand consultants for right. whoever came out of the process. 
Do you think we should get rid of the primaries? Yeah. I mean, I think that this process, that these changes in politics are exactly an example of what I'm describing as this move from mold institutions to platform institutions. So that over and over in our politics, we've turned institutions that are supposed to channel political energy and and compel accommodation into institutions that just display these differences and function as, as, uh, as stages for performance. The parties have completely become such platforms, um, and they don't really now have a role in shaping our political life. Uh, But the same thing has happened in Congress. And, you know, my chapter on that in the book is really uh, a a kind of attack on transparency. Mm -hmm. I think transparency, you need some. You don't want everything done in closed back rooms. But the purpose of Congress is negotiation, and you cannot negotiate in public, period. Nobody has ever done that. When you see negotiation in public, you're watching a show. You're not really watching a conversation. And, you know, the only spaces left in Congress to do any negotiation in private now are basically the leadership offices at midnight the day before the government's going to shut down. And that's where everything happens Mm -hmm. because it's going to happen wherever there is room to talk in private. So Congress needs more room to talk in private. If you talk to members who are on the Senate Intelligence Committee, they'll tell you that that's their favorite committee. And the reason is that they get to talk to each other, mm-hmm. and they can admit that they don't know something. You can't do that in front of the C-SPAN cameras in every other part of the jobs they do. I think we need more space for these institutions to have internal lives, more room for members of Congress to negotiate, more of a role for the parties as basically professional institutions, which is what they are. The parties are not public. They're private organizations. They're private organizations that provide political expertise for the use of our political system. And instead, they've just become hosts of uh, kind of pseudo-elections. And I think that's gone way too far. Primaries, especially open primaries, where it doesn't even matter if you're a member of the party, uh, th- those n- they not only don't serve a purpose, they prevent the parties from serving the purpose they're supposed to serve. The trouble, of course, is it's very hard for politicians to make an argument that says we we need more privacy right um or we need to let the professionals have more of a role that's why outsiders like me and like you need to make that argument because the politicians are going to have a very hard time doing that and you know the case against transparency is not exactly an easy case to make on election day yeah it's also i mean we, we t- i think we talked about this on the last time you were on part of the problem is nobody has the the intellectual or political authority to argue against the sort of simplistic arguments for democracy, yeah. right? And the the weird irony of, of political parties in a democracy is that they need to be undemocratic, That's right. internally undemocratic, right? right? Not complete, not strictly authoritarian, but it, 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 it dawned on me while I was reading your book, you know, the what is it, uh, Robert Michael's The Iron Law of Oligarchy, which says that all institutions eventually become sort of oligarchical because certain people, just by virtue of having expertise about how the institution works, get more power, and eventually they're run by a small group of people. And it seems to me that in, I still think it's something of an iron law, but the one way you kind of hold that at bay is by putting television cameras on it, uh-huh. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's true. But, you know, the, 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 the fact is our democracy requires for its functioning some non-democratic institutions. 
And the, 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 the Constitution was written in secret that's with right. no transparency. Exactly. <laughs> and the parties, you know, the, the old line in political science is that the, the, there's democracy between the parties, not within the parties. The parties don't, they're, they're not representative of their millions of members. They serve those people by providing a certain kind of political expertise. But arguing for expertise now has become really challenging. Mm-hmm. Our politics is in no mood to hear that argument. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think the logic of the framers of the Constitution is that democracy is enormously important. It's absolutely vital to a free society, but it also comes with risks, and those have to be contained by certain kind of strong institutions that channel it. But it's 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 funny, and I should have asked you this at the beginning um, because this is sort of part of your premise. But there are plenty of places where respect for expertise is perfectly healthy, right? I mean, nobody wants to get the statistically average brain surgeon. Nobody, right, right you know, we, you don't want um, a lawyer plucked from the meaty part of the bell curve, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we don't send our our most solidly mediocre troops into hairy situations, right? We like elite soldiers. We like elite doctors. We right. like elite lawyers. We like elite experts and physicists and scientists and all of that kind of stuff. But it is in the vast swath of political and cultural life where, because we've taught people that we are experts of ourselves, that we cannot countenance somebody telling us they know better for us than than, than we do ourselves. Yeah, I mean, there's a democratic logic here that says that ultimately we shouldn't trust experts because they're trying to get to to pull something over on us. and it's uh, certainly in, in some areas of our lives, we want to be able to trust experts. And we do, as you say, want the elites uh, in various uh, lines of work to be the people who do what we need done. But we trust those people. We think they are elite because we think they are formed in a way that makes them more than just, uh, m- more than just serving their own purposes and their own ends. They live by a code, right? That's what those elites do in various professions. And I think we need that sense more broadly in our society that professionals in general are professionals when they live by a code. And that means they can't just be independent contractors. They need to be parts of these larger holes. Uh, Obviously, there's always going to be a democratic pressure that pushes against expertise uh, and that pushes in a kind of populist direction in our society. All these things are matters of degree. But there's no way now to look at American life and not think that we've gone way too far in the direction of imagining that there is no such thing as expertise uh, and that and, and having a kind of cynical view of what all the institutions of our society do. In order to recover from that, we need not just to trust them, but to make them more trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And that's the bigger challenge. Yeah. I mean, so we're recording this on the day the Washington Post had this story about um, from an excerpt from a new book about um, uh where Trump is telling his top military officials that they're all um, dopes and losers. Um, And it does seem like you said earlier that Twitter and social media generally seem perfectly designed to exacerbate the problems that were long in the making. It seems like Donald Trump is too. Yes, I think that's right. In some ways, he's an embodiment of these uh, of these sort of cultural pressures and forces that I'm describing. If you think of them as a mix of uh, a, a kind of reality television celebrity culture on the one hand, cynicism about institutions, uh, uh, and a sense that all of life is a performance 
and that politics is just performance art, the human embodiment of the combination of attitudes looks a lot like Donald Trump. And presumably that's also why this moment was so well suited to him succeeding in our politics. So there's no question that in the way in which he thinks about his job, he is making these problems worse in our politics. And do you think as a conservative in what I would say is the best sense of the term, that conservatism, as I hate to say this, given everything we've talked about, as a brand mm-hmm. can survive what we're seeing right now? Well, look, I, I think that depends on whether it plays a part in helping the country recover its strengths in the years to come. Um, I, I am hopeful about America. I'm not exactly optimistic, but I'm hopeful. I think we have the resources that it would take uh, for a recovery here. But that means that we have to use people's sense that things aren't going well as a reason to persuade them that we need to change some of our attitudes about uh, about our public institutions, about the character of our politics and what our culture needs. Conservatism has a huge role to play in doing that, but it obviously hasn't helped itself in recent years by aligning itself with a kind of cynical antinomian populism. A conservatism that hates institutions is incoherent and even dangerous. Right. I think that's a fair way of putting it. All right. On that upbeat note, (laughs) (laughs) Yuval, thanks so much for doing it. The book is A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. You can get it wherever you can get excellent books. Thanks very much. Thanks, Yuval.